Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. With me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. We have two topics today that we're going to discuss, and a little bit later in the program, we'll be talking about pharmacy benefit managers. And this is something that we've discussed on this program before, in part because it's something that we think there is bipartisan agreement on. Uh, is is And the agreement might even just be of, hey, we don't really know what you people do except add to the cost. There was some movement in the Senate last week. Uh, to ban spread pricing, a practice by pharmacy benefit managers. We're going to talk about that and what it means for uh, pharmaceuticals a little bit later in the program. First, though, Ron, uh, sort of a follow-up on our conversation with Dr. Hurley uh, and having to do with prior authorizations and, and denials. And it's a change in a United Healthcare policy uh, last month that doctors are, are very... Uh, gastroenterologists, in particular, are very frustrated about, and that is adding colonoscopies to their to their prior authorization list. Um, taking a step back here, colonoscopies, because it's a cancer screening, are included in the preventative care stuff under the Affordable Care Act. So how is it that United Healthcare can add that uh, to their prior authorization list in it that it needs prior authorization before a patient can get it? Well, there's really two, two ways that they can do it. First of all, they are not requiring prior authorization for screening colonoscopies. So for the okay. screening colonoscopy, that's still there. It's the colonoscopy after. It's when they find a polyp or when they say, mm. well, this looks, um, you know, looks problematic. Let's do it again in a year and, and see if they've grown or anything like that. It's, it's the stuff that happens after the screening. The second is that just because it's preventative care and falling into that, that means they have to cover it. It doesn't mean they can't put it through some sort of you okay. know, scrutiny, whether it's looking for prior authorization or something like that. So, um, but the big thing here is they're not doing the screening colonoscopies. They're only doing the ones after that. Right. Okay. That that makes sense. And I guess that, that does help the system, but I'm sure as um, some doctors are frustrated about it, it does, as many doctors think about prior authorizations, it, it puts patients' health at risk. Yeah, especially when you think about the ones they're putting under prior authorizations are the ones where a doctor has said, I need to do something more. Mm-hmm. It'd be similar to saying, well, look, we're fine letting you having that screening mammography, but if the doctor sees a lump and they want to do a diagnostic or something else, well, now we got to stop it right there because, you know, we can't let that move forward. Well, those are the ones that the doctors are arguing really do need to move forward mm-hmm. because the ones where I saw something I don't like and I need to figure it out. United Healthcare said in a statement, multiple clinical studies have shown significant overutilization or unnecessary use of non-screening gastroenterology endoscopy procedures, which may expose our members to unnecessary medical risks and additional out-of-pocket costs. The physicians who will be most affected by this new policy are those who are not already following these evidence-based practices. I guess I'll, I'll say this tongue-in-cheek, Ron. How much of that is a load of crap? Um... The vast majority of it. Yeah. So a couple things. First of all, the biggest criticism United is getting from the gastroenterology community on that is they said they want to know what studies. Mm-hmm. Show us the, the evidence-based studies. And United won't. Um, they won't show them the studies. So first of all, when you when you stand up and say, well, this is all evidence-based medicine, well, then show us the evidence. Be transparent about that. And they won't. Mm-hmm. Um so that's why I would say the vast majority of it is, a, is sort of a load of crap. Now, 
That being said, and being completely sort of fair and balanced, is there overutilization of GI procedures? Well, I'm sure there are. Mm -hmm. There's overutilization of pretty much everything that we do in healthcare. To me, the bigger question is, and the reason why people are so upset with this is, why is, it, is there overutilization? Is it overutilization that is purely financially based by a physician? We need to root that out. Is it overutilization because of defensive medicine? A doctor saying, well, I don't really think that polyp is cancer, but boy, if I'm wrong and I don't do anything, I'm gonna get sued. Right. Is it overutilization because the patient just freaks out and say, I'm not gonna sleep at night unless you come and do something else more? Well, that's a whole different story. Um, is it you know, overutilization only after you find out that it really wasn't anything? You know, There's this idea of, if I do another test and that test proves that it wasn't cancer, you know, with that knowledge, then can you say, well, that's overutilization because it wasn't cancer? Well, yeah, but I only know it by doing the extra test. So, you know, there, is there overutilization? Sure. A lot of those are sort of explained or understandable overutilization, if you will. Um, some of it needs to be rooted out. But the big problem here is they're not sharing with what that criteria is mm -hmm. and what those studies are. Um, and I think if they did that, the community, medical community would be much more on board of of wanting to root out what is true, unnecessary overutilization. Right. Absolutely. And to talk about, it, at least from my own personal experience, I know you've shared some of your own uh, treatment experiences as well here, Ron, and I'll share a little bit of mine. A, a couple Over a year ago, I had a, a, an upper endoscopy um, procedure done and found that I had a peptic ulcer. I had several peptic ulcers. And uh, I had another one not too long ago, and it came back saying that there wasn't anything there, which is good. It showed that the treatment I had worked and that they hadn't returned. Um, and whatever lifestyle changes I'd made on my part helped with that as well. So under this, do you think that United Healthcare, in that particular instance, which United Healthcare is not our insurance company, but do you think that they would in that instance say that that second procedure I had this year would count as overutilization for the purposes of trying to limit more in the future? And they may. And that's the problem of not being transparent mm -hmm. is nobody knows, you know, where this data is coming from. Nobody knows what criteria they're using. Nobody knows whether the people who are um, producing the studies that they're talking about are legitimate. We don't know if that's a study that was peer reviewed, double blinded and in JAMA and, or the New England Journal of Medicine. Or was it something out of the, you know, the University of Moscow's statistic department? Which, sure. I mean, again, I'm just saying, once you don't be, once you're not transparent about that, you invite all this criticism. Mm -hmm. It could be that the studies that United is referencing are legitimate studies, but why are they hiding them if they are? Mm -hmm. I, interestingly enough, uh, one of the other criticisms coming from some physicians after this uh, policy change is that. Earlier this year, on March, and we'll have this linked in the show notes, United Healthcare announced that they were going to be eliminating what they said were nearly 20% of current prior authorizations. Um, now, in the same press release, they don't really say what procedures they're eliminating those prior authorizations are, but that they're eliminating 20% of them. Do you think that they're actually going to eliminate 20%, or is this a face-saving move Um try and make themselves look a little bit better while they're tacking them on to something like colonoscopies? Um, I, I think it's a combination of both. Okay. I think they're probably trimming down their, um, their prior off list, and they're probably finding that there are prior offs they're doing where they're unable to deny hardly any of them, and so why do it? And, and if those are being limited, good for you. I mm -hmm. mean, that should happen. Um, 
do I trust any of their numbers when they say it's 20%? Not until they show us the numbers. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a combination of, you know, saving a little face. I think they're probably doing some of that. Um, and I think it's to help sort of ease the pain of what they're doing here. United is a smart company. They know mm -hmm. that doing prior authorizations on things like colonoscopies, they were going to catch flack for it. So they had to have something to help mitigate that flag. I think they know that if they release those studies, it would get a lot of um, arrows shot at it. I doubt that these are what a lot of GIs would consider, um, you know, the the most current data on, mm -hmm. you know, when to when to be ordering right. additional studies procedures. And again, the doctors that I talk to, they don't like people who are doing, you know overutilization for financial reasons. They don't like physicians who are not good at their craft. Um, they want those physicians to be rooted out. Um, they just don't like it when an insurance company plays this kind of heavy-handed role, and especially when they're not transparent. Right. And and as we talked about before, especially with Dr. Hurley several weeks ago, was that, you know, it's not, their claim is not that they're denying care. They're just denying they're not going to pay for it when they, you know, run something through some of these hoops. Right. Is there a case to be made for more regulation on things like prior authorization? Oh, I think there's absolutely a case to be made for that. Um, I think there's absolutely a case to be made for regulation on how, how it can be done, when it can be done, who can be held responsible when it's done poorly. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer there should be one set of clinical criteria that everybody has to live with. If, if something is clinically proven under one insurance carrier, it shouldn't be clinically not proven under another. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's like that old saying about, you know, you can have your own opinion, you just can't have your own set of facts. Right. Um, and I think there should be responsibilities if you do it poorly. Um, if you are denying things that cause damage to somebody's life, um, you can't, you shouldn't be able to hide behind this idea of, well, I was only saying I'm denying payment. That's, you know, that's a load of mm. crap um, because people can't afford this stuff on their own. Um, so, yeah, I think there, it's definitely a, an area for um, for some more regulation. And I'm not a huge fan of regulation, you know, so right. this comes from somebody who doesn't like over-regulation by the government. Well, to quote a professor I had in college, a little regulation goes a long way. And unfortunately, yeah. a little regulation turns into a lot of regulation, but a little regulation does go a long way. We're about to talk about a bipartisan issue. Do you think prior authorizations could be a bipartisan issue for especially this narrow uh, majority in Congress that both sides have? Um, I doubt it because the insurance industry is such a powerful lobby. Okay. Um, and it's not as, as obvious a, you know, quote unquote boogeyman as things like, and I know we're going to talk about this next about PBMs and big pharma. So um, I, I doubt it. I just think the insurance industry is too big of a lobby now to, um, you know, to allow this to be a bipartisan mm -hmm. issue. Well, there's more reading available on this issue in the show notes for this program and at flatlining.net. You can see what United Healthcare thinks about prior authorizations and read what physicians, particularly gastroenterologists, think about this change in policy. Find it at the show notes or at flatlining.net. Hi there. Thanks for checking out the Flatlining Podcast. If you like this program and the content you're listening to, do us and your fellow healthcare workers a favor. Subscribe to the show on this platform and share it with your friends. 
We're quickly growing thanks to you, and we want to help more and more physicians and practice managers stay up to date on the most pressing issues in healthcare. So subscribe and share the program with your friends and colleagues. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Moving on now to talk about pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, This was one of the things we talked about at the beginning of the year that does uh, have bipartisan um, interest, at at least, uh, on how to regulate them. And and I think there's a bipartisan question about what it exactly is that they uh, do. Interestingly enough, the other night, Ron, I was watching something on television and an ad came up from Big Pharma, uh, pretty heavily critical of the pharmacy benefit managers. pointing out that they're the ones that are stealing all the rebates and are determining that some people shouldn't get uh, shouldn't get certain prescriptions. So I guess we'll start with um, some background information. Uh, who are pharmacy benefit managers and what is it that they're supposed to do? So pharmacy benefit managers are, it's an industry that sort of sprouted up as, you know, pharmacy costs started to go through the roof. And they are supposed to help um, employers self-funded or fully insured, manage that pharmacy benefit by helping them control cost. And the pitch that they made was, we'll negotiate better pricing with you, we'll get rebates from the manufacturer, we'll help you set um, formularies uh, that will lower your drug costs. So it was this idea that they were gonna understand the, the drug industry, they were gonna act as purchaser um, and uh, you know direct these patients to the most cost-effective medicine. That was the pitch, and that's how they sort of injected themselves into the process. Now, they are really, to a large degree, nothing more than a middleman. Um, and that's where the problem has become, is people are starting to say, well, wait a minute, what are you doing other than taking money out of this process mm-hmm. um, and putting it in your own pocket, which costs money for everybody? Uh, the Senate Health Committee, uh, that's the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, uh, advanced uh, several generic drug bills this week and included a PBM reform bill, which passed 18 to 3, that would prohibit a practice known as spread pricing. Um, what What is spread pricing and how does that work? Spread pricing, for lack of a better term, is a markup. Okay. And basically it's the difference between um, what the PBM charges the payer, the insurance company, and what they pay the pharmacy. Um, and they keep the difference. So it's it's a and this is this whole middleman thing, is in addition to getting paid what is a either an admin fee or a fee for the work that they do, um, they also mark up this these drugs that flow through their channels, even though they don't handle them, they don't do anything with them, um, and that markup gets um, you know gets added to the price of those drugs through the you know through the insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that this bill did that, that or passed through this committee, uh, and it'll go to the floor uh, of the Senate in, in a, another package of health plans that are, or health bills that are going through, uh, it required some more transparency on PBM contracts, uh, and it also required that 100% of rebates collected from the drug makers uh, need to go to the health plans. How is that going to change um, what the health plans... I, I'm just going to say get, in other words, is it going to help uh, lower prescription drug costs for the patients or how is that going to change things? Well, that's that's the design of it is these PBMs have injected themselves into the process. 
and they're funneling money out of the process. Okay, and if that money were to you know go to the end consumer, it would lower drug cost. And one of them is the spread pricing. Another of them is these rebate things, where they they will go to the you know to the manufacturer and say, hey, if you want your uh, your drug on this formulary or in all these pharmacies, you know you need to give me a rebate for every pill that gets pushed through there. Um, and they pass some of those rebates on to the insurance company and then on to the employer, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. So they just keep siphoning money out of the system, if you will. And, it, and, and to a large degree, making really large profits. I think the, right. the last number I saw for gross profits for the PBM industry, remember, they don't make a drug, they don't ship a drug, they don't sell a drug. You know, they're just in the middle of the process. Mm-hmm. They don't handle these drugs. And the industry was making about $30 billion of profits a year. And that's just money they're, you know, taking out of the system. Now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Optum RX is, is a pharmacy benefit manager that is entirely owned by United Healthcare, correct? Mm-hmm. So yeah. how does that work in that instance that if, if United Healthcare is collecting on the profits either way, and now that the rebate just has to go back to United Healthcare plans, or I guess the employers, and if they're... Um, self-funded uh, insurance plans. How is that going to work um, in that particular instance, since it doesn't really matter where the money comes from for United Healthcare? Well, it, it does in that by United Healthcare putting some of that profit into their PBM, they don't have to show it as insurance company profit. Sure. So then the insurance side of that silo, they can say, well, look, we didn't make that much profit mm-hmm. because they're now in essence channeling money off to their PBM division. It's the mm-hmm. same thing with you know, the physicians that they own. You know, United Healthcare is the second largest employer of physicians in the country. Well, those physicians can make profit um, that's different than the insurance company profit, that that's different than the PBM profit. So it's a really ingenious little closed system there. Right. Um, now, if you, you're right. If United Healthcare is required to pass through all those rebates, the profit will be the same. It'll just shift from one you know, mm-hmm. balance sheet to another. Right. Um, one thing that happened uh, in the Senate Help Committee was that uh, three people voted against this particular bill, and that would be Rand Paul, Mitt Romney, and Tommy Tuberville. All three of them are Republicans. Um, Rand Paul alleged that some small companies, uh, who I'm, I'm assuming have uh, self-funded plans if they're able to pick their pharmacy benefit managers, uh, do save money by having price spreading. And he wanted an amendment that said that PBMs had to offer an alternative rather than just outright banning um, pharmacy benefit managers. Is it possible that some companies save money on price spreading? Um, I think it's extremely unlikely, and if it does, extremely small. Okay. Um, I would be, and I don't know this, this is conjecture. You know, when I think about Rand Paul, Mitt Romney, and Tuberville, it'd be really interesting to know how much either PBM lobbying money or industry lobbying money the three of them got. Because yeah. mm-hmm. their arguments against them seem to be very weak. Um, you know, there, there are potential arguments, much stronger arguments that could be made. And this whole idea that there might be a small employer out there that's actually saving money and I don't want any damage to that, that one small employer seems like a really weak argument to me. And that whenever that happens, it's usually because, well, I have to vote this way because I get all this lobbying money and I just have to have some kind of excuse for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that make that makes sense. There, it's uh, it's interesting to see. I do know there's been a little bit of turmoil in this committee over the past few weeks. Uh, 
the the Republicans were very um, frustrated that it seemed like uh, Senator Sanders, who's the chair of the committee, um, was kind of rushing things through without good procedure. But both both sides seem to agree this week that things are moving better and they've got better bills than they did the week before. This particular uh, bill should reach the floor of the Senate later this year when Democratic leader Chuck Schumer is going to bring a package of health uh, proposals to the floor. Um, do you think uh, Biden would, would sign something like this? Or do you think that he would be a little bit uh, hesitant to go after PBMs? No, I think Biden would sign something like mm-hmm. this. Um, I, I think he absolutely would sign it. First of all, um, not signing it, uh, you know, gives his opposition, you know, arrows to, to shoot in his direction. Oh, absolutely. You know, he's in the pockets of big pharma, et cetera. Now, the one, the, so I think if it gets to the floor of the Senate and, and it gets through the Senate and gets passed, I think it'll, uh, it's got a really good chance of becoming law. The one thing, though, to, to really, the, to me, the interesting part about this, and I think that a lot of this PBM stuff should go away. I don't think they add any value. I think they just take money out of the system, and, you know, $30 billion is $30 billion. Um, but the funny part, you, you mentioned it when you saw that ad where Big Pharma's taking shots at the PBMs. That's a little bit like, you know, somebody going, don't look at me, look over there. Mm-hmm. They're offering up, Big Pharma's offering up the PBMs as a sacrificial lamb to keep everybody from coming after Big Pharma. Um, and, and there's sort of good reason for that. I mean, big pharma is making enormous profit margins, just truly enormous profit margins. And they don't want people focused on that. So this is a distraction from that. And the big pharma profit margins are worth a whole lot more money than the PBMs. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a, uh, um, a study in, in JAMA of all places, um, taking a look at big pharma compared to other large corporations, you know, because it's one thing to say they're making profit. Well, all big companies make profit on average. What, you know, what does their profit look like? And regardless of the measure, whether it's gross profit margin, EBITDA margin, net income margin, big pharma, when they lumped it together, was make is making twice the rate that the other large companies are making. Mm. You know, and they, they looked at from 2000 to 2018, gross profit margin, other large companies, 37%, big pharma, 76%. Yeah. EBITDA margin, other large companies, 19, big pharma, 29. Net income margin, other large companies, 7.7, big pharma, 13.8. When you've got a huge segment of an economy and one that is just hyperinflating, making twice the margin of other companies, something's going on, you know? And so this whole thing about the PBMs, I really think is partly people wanting to get the PBMs. And I would not be surprised what big pharma is throwing lobbying money at everybody else on that committee Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, go get these guys. You know, we'll give you a sacrificial lamb. Go, you know, go chop their heads off as long as you don't come after me. And the one person that you would probably suspect that they're not throwing money at is Sanders, given that he's oh, yeah, just the he, way he is. And he I made mean, clear he can't that. Be yeah, exactly. And you he know? made clear, and, and this is a quote in this uh, article from The Hill, that this is not the last per, uh, prescription yeah. drug markup they're going to be uh, taking a look at. So Yeah. No, uh, I mean, like I yeah, said, we've absolutely. said this before. I, I may disagree with the guy's policies, but I can't disagree with his purity. He believes what he believes. He's always believed it. And I don't think he can be bought one way or the other. So he's he's almost like a, you know, the the one true religious zealot in the right. you know in the in Congress. I mm-hmm. mean, and he's always been that way. So, yep. um, yeah, I think he's the only guy in that committee who probably can't be bought, and, but he's only one vote. Yep. You know, 
Absolutely. Uh, the let's talk about real quick something else that President Biden had signed, and that was uh, a couple of years ago, and that was part of the Medicare drug price negotiation. We've talked about that before. That uh, it's it's problematic for a number of reasons. It's not really going to lower the cost of healthcare. Uh, or drug prices for that matter. Um, recently, the CEO of Pfizer, I thought was interesting, kind of said the same thing that we had said back when it happens. Uh, he called the negotiation with uh, the Medicare health program, uh, quote, a negotiation with a gun to your head. Um, yeah. And he, he very clearly said that it's it's not a negotiation. It is, it is price setting. Um, and we've talked about that before, and I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on the CEO of Pfizer saying that. Well... A, he's right. I mean, he, he is, you know, from a from a pure perspective, he's correct. You don't negotiate with Medicare on these things. They tell you what they're going to pay. Um, and so he's correct on that. He's also correct. It's price setting. Um, just like the, you know, the No Surprises Act is price setting to a large degree. Um, and, and those are dangerous and slippery slopes. Now, the problem he has, the credibility problem he has, is, you know, it's like somebody who's, it'd be like, you know, billionaires complaining about the price of insurance on a yacht. Mm -hmm. People really don't care, even if it's wrong. You know, even if you've been absolutely fleeced by your yacht insurance, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. And so the CEO of Pfizer complaining about somebody taking some of his money is going to fall on a lot of deaf ears, even though he is right, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, one of the things that Reuters points out, uh, who reported on this story, is that uh, Pfizer, two of Pfizer's drugs um, are probably going to be first on the chopping block, which is um, their cancer treatment, Ibrantz, and the blood thinner that they share a patent with, with Bristol-Myers Squibb, and that's Eliquis, because uh, they're both high-cost drugs. Uh, he also said there's probably going to be legal action, um, but he said he wasn't sure if it's going to happen before this law goes into effect in 2026. Yeah. Yep. We'll have further reading on this and on the PBM reforms in the show notes at flatlining.net. Ron, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us today. Thank you, as always. Make sure you're subscribed to the Flatlining podcast so you never miss an episode, including our new series, Pulse Check on the Candidates. More details on that are available at flatlining.net. Just click Election 2024. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.